I'm John Kane, and I welcome you to Let's Talk Native. While this program may not provide a path to spiritual enlightenment, we do encourage and in some cases start conversations. We are shooting for a different kind of enlightenment here, and we kind of break the rules for Native Radio. We don't do prayers, we don't do Buffalo speeches, and we don't do spirituality shows. Uh, we take a tough look at history, oppression, uh, and survival. We talk about the uh, culture, the arts, politics, and identity, and we may step on a few toes along the way. But our real goal here is to bring people together by breaking down what separates us. We will take on the false narratives and provide critical thinking to all that's heaped upon us, and we do it all right here from our LTN studios, live on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. So let's talk native. Uh, look, I've got a guest joining me tonight. I've got uh, somebody who I haven't actually talked to in a while, uh, Janine Yazi. She's Dene, so from Navajo Territory, in case you don't know that. Um, she's, a, uh, she's a human rights uh, and an, an indigenous rights activist. She um, is also the co-founder and CEO of Sixth World Solutions, which works on uh, Dene Community, uh, communities to develop projects, programs, and policies that promote sustainability, environmental justice, and self-governance. Uh, she has worked on renewable energy development, uh, broadband development, climate change adaptation, um, and mitigation, uh, and, and social and economic justice. Uh, she is uh, currently serving as the Sustainable Development Coordinator for the International Treaty Council and is the co-vener of the Indigenous Peoples Major Group for Sustainable Development, uh, which engages with the UN High-Level Political Forum on Sustainable Development. And she is also coordinating COVID-19 relief efforts on the ground in Navajo Territory. So let me welcome Janine Yazi to Let's Talk Native. It is just a pleasure to have you join us. Thank you so much, John. It's a pleasure to be invited to be on your show. Well, you know, we did a left forum event. Man, it's got to be. It's, is, it, is it really like 10 years now? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So we did a left forum event kind of together. We, you were on a, a second a panel that followed my panel. And uh, and that's where we first met. And, and we've, you know, I've been following a little bit of the work that you've been doing over the years. And I know you've been very, very active. And, and of course, it, it's nice if we can just talk about... Um, some of the good work that you're doing and and we will but we also have to talk about uh, the tragedy that is unfolding in, in Navajo territory i mean this uh, for those that don't know and and i got to word this the right way because it's it's really easy for people to say well navajo territory stretches across three you know into three states no those states try to encroach on navajo territory so they're you know <laughs> Some of the three of those states claim to uh, claim Navajo territory, and those are Utah, New Mexico, and Arizona. Where and and most of um, Navajo territory is in that disputed Arizona territory. Um, it is a a uh, rather large population compared to most native territories. I don't know, what what do the numbers look like for people living on Navajo territory? Uh, we have over half our enrolled population living on our reservation, so upwards of 150 to 175,000 people. Yeah, that's what that's what I thought. Those are those are the numbers I've been saying. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you didn't make a liar out of it because I've talked about this over uh, over the past couple of weeks. Now, of course, when when I talk about the tragedy that's unfolding, is it's it's the raw numbers from COVID 19, and and the fact is that I think as of today, um, according to Worldometers, there are almost uh, 9,008 
8,927 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Navajo Territory, which is a very large number for, I mean, even though, look, even though 175,000 people is a lot of Native people, in the overall mix for other populations, that's not a big population. And uh, and to have almost 9,000 confirmed cases and uh, almost 450 uh, deaths, those numbers make most uh, pale many states by comparison in, in both in confirmed cases and the number of deaths. I think it's there. Uh, it's more than like 11 states in terms of number of cases and and more than 16 states in terms of, uh, you know, the, the casualties. And that doesn't doesn't fully touch the the you know the full ramifications of having uh, such a widespread uh infection rate on on a native territory uh talk talk to us about um i mean give me give me your thoughts just in general as an overview of what uh, what's going on in uh, the native territory Absolutely. I think um, one of the first points I want to make is that the numbers absolutely do not cover or capture what's actually happening on the ground. Um, one of the best tracking mechanisms that we have is the Navajo Nation Epidemiology Center. And when you like a new feature on their website is a whole disclaimer about the data that they're presenting and the accuracy of it. And uh, it's because of a lot of issues. Like one, um, the inconsistency with accessing testing, the inconsistency around who can get tested and when, the um, not including in the data enrolled Navajo Nation members that live in border towns or have addresses off the reservation. Um, And then the in the early months of this, when this virus really started to, um, you know, spread in our communities unabated, um, we still didn't have all the information that we needed about this virus. And so people were dying in their homes from heart attacks and strokes. And only until three months in did people realize that we get enough information to know that that could also be coronavirus-related deaths. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to take us a a long time to really fully capture all of the information necessary to know how even just our one tribe has truly been impacted by this virus. And like you said, we're we're not a big population in general. We're, We're one of the largest tribes in the United States. But still, like because of the rate of the spread and the rate of of deaths that are a result of COVID-19, everyone is impacted. These are extended families, clan networks, and and vital community members that we're losing uh, to this very devastating health pandemic. Well, and and part of the issue with many Native territories is is our lifestyles are different and most people can't um fully embrace especially if you're non-native or if you live in an urban environment you don't quite appreciate um the distinction in the way native peoples live and it it varies from territory to territory but here in seneca territory we're suffering from some of the same issues we had you know we don't have that big a population here there's only about four thousand living on uh, seneca territory and out of that four thousand the infection rate was was higher than than most it actually on a percentage basis it actually starts to compare a little bit to to what's been transpiring in in your territory and and we've had 
um, 12 deaths out of out of a population of 4,000, that's that's a still a pretty high number. So, mm-hmm. and and as you're saying, there's still a lot of inaccuracy. When we give again, whether it's Johns Hopkins or or, or Worldometer, they are using numbers that only are, are confirmed by test. There there by some estimates, there there may be 10 times the, uh, that rate of infection going on. And of course, the mischaracterization of cause of death is, is significant. You got, on one hand, you've got some people saying. Oh, they're labeling everything as COVID deaths, which I don't believe that for a second. I think they're undercounting uh, a lot of it. And, and of course, this disease exacerbates any other underlying condition. And that underlying condition can also be you know, weather conditions. I mean, uh, extreme heat, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know other, other environmental issues that, that we face. So, and, and that's a challenge for, for your territory and your people in, in general, as it is for many. But, but you guys... Um, Look, you you do you're spread out over a large area, so sometimes providing the resources to to communities and especially some of the more remote communities that you kind of uh, mentioned a little while ago, that becomes difficult, especially when you talk about resources in terms of healthcare. So, I mean, and look, this was all the story in the news a month ago, and now all of a sudden it's dropped from from sight, and 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 people are kind of ignoring, you know. Well, so where is it now? And and it hasn't abated yet. So give give me a little bit um, of your overview on on the challenges of healthcare uh, in general, but as it relates specifically to COVID nineteen. Absolutely. Um, I think this is a very important question that we try to stress with a lot of people, especially when we were in the national spotlight, because we're we're often confronted by journalists who kept asking us, like, oh, my God, why why is your nation being hit so bad? And I was just like, well, if you're paying attention <laughs> at any point in the history of this country, you'd realize that there was huge injustices and systemic issues that already created and manufactured health pandemics and, and, and genocidal conditions prior to COVID ever reaching our territory. Sure. And and so the 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 barriers and the challenges that are created from having a thirty to forty percent population that doesn't have electricity, our running water, the enormous digital divide affecting over seventy percent of our land base, um, the the fact that there are only thirteen grocery stores and eight Indian healthcare service units servicing our entire nation. Uh, you know, like we were, we were sitting ducks. We we're sitting uh, ducks and some of those this. have very limited hours, from what I understand, because of the very, staffing, right? Yeah, very limited hours, high turnover rate, highly like and, and like criminally under resourced for years prior to this pandemic. And then when the rest of the country was grappling with the hot spots in Seattle and Washington and other places, we still did not have access to testing in our hospitals. And so when 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 the story broke about the first case in the Navajo Nation, which you know was brought over through uh, evangelical, um, um, I forget what they're called, revival services that uh, where a, a non-native off-reservation um, priest or pastor, whatever they're called like came into our territories and infected entire congregations within a small community cluster, those people could not even get tested at well, their from, local and, hospital facility. And from, what, and from what I understand, it wasn't just a church service. This was 
bringing in um, bringing in congregations from all over the territory. So it was a- mm-hmm. an absolute super spreader event that is tied to this notion of group worship, um, you know, a religion that is not our own. And, and I'll say that I know some people might take offense to it. But and, and, and of course, one of the things that I find really disturbing, and I'm going to mention it now just because you brought it up, is when I see a Billy Graham revival or evangelical bus showing up on your territory, and I don't know what they were offering for, for help, but, you know, there's just something about thoughts and prayers that only go so far. <laughs> and so when I, when I see this, and, and I know a lot of people reacted to this, and I was one of them, I said, wait a second, that's how, the, that's how this thing got started there in the first place. And so they have the nerve to show up as if they're going to bring, you know, some sort of religious relief to a territory that basically became infected because of this, you know, again, some of this evangelical outreach on a native territory. I I find that disturbing. Mm -hmm. No, it is disturbing. And for me, it's infuriating because the here you have our Navajo Nation leadership extending this branch of cooperation and partnership with uh, Billy Graham and his group, knowing full well how this started, knowing full well that they've made their own mistakes administratively in the early onset of this virus by allowing church services special permits to continue when Mm -hmm. the when we were when when at the at the critical point point when we needed to stop critical uh, community spread when we needed to give people adequate information and and then and and throughout the course of this this administration has been hostile towards indigenous led mutual aid efforts on the ground and we've had to struggle and create the infrastructure to provide relief to our most vulnerable community members while also navigating the very barriers and challenges created by our own government that did not recognize humanitarian relief as an essential service and subjected our volunteers who were bringing these life-saving resources to to families without electricity, families without water, families who lost their sole source of income and who were locked down and forced to to stay in place for 57-hour-long weekends with no food or water for a household of sometimes 10 to 15 people, most of those children. And yet you see them, you know, gallivanting on all of these media services about this partnership they have with Billy Graham and his and his and his group like it was a slap in the face especially sure. since uh, in the midst of this and CARES Act negotiations, our own Hatatlis, our own medicine keepers, our traditional knowledge holders who are not only most at risk to uh, in in terms of contracting this virus or severe forms of this virus, but who are also most critical for the spiritual, mental, and physical well-being of our peoples who have the knowledge to help us weather this pandemic because they've been given those medicines, those ceremonies, those lessons, those teachings from previous pandemics that our communities have had to weather. We're, we're outright denied any federal, any assistance from the CARES Act allocation to do their life-saving work and, and to protect themselves and their, and their groups because we only have 300 traditional knowledge holders left in our communities. And so that really shows both the, the huge disconnect of this administration from what's actually necessary and needed on the ground in support of our people who are stepping up to provide the social nets, the safety nets, the resources, the PPE, everything that our communities need to stay safe and how they've allowed themselves to be co-opted by a religious agenda and their response to this pandemic when we shouldn't we should not be even 
having this type of divide are this type of, of, of haphazard responses and, and how our own tribal government responds uh, to the needs of, of, of the people on the ground. Well, and look, I understand that there's there's bound to be some diverse thought and, and uh, you know, political ideology and that kind of stuff. But it, it just seems like there's always seems to be a bit of a disconnect <clears throat> between um, Navajo governance and the and what the people are experiencing. And and, you know, it, whether it's whether it's the, you know offering code talkers for a name for the a replacement name for the Washington football team or um or or whether it's posing for pictures with Donald Trump or whatever else it just seems like there's invariably some you know some insane image that comes from some of the 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 elected leadership there and of course we also have challenges because as we tried to take um, issues, some of these issues into our own hand by protecting our territories. We saw this in, in uh, Lakota territory, but we've seen it in a lot of our territories here where, where we've tried to limit travel through our territories. We tried to create travel bans and that kind of stuff. We've met resistance from, from not only from oftentimes from uh, tribal leaders, but also from, from, uh, from state governing officials and that kind of stuff. So even as we're trying to protect ourselves, we have to, we have to fight some of our own people and of course we have to fight the the states we have mm-hmm. to fight the feds we have to fight them every step of the way even as we're as we're fighting for our lives absolutely and and it's frustrating you know even in the midst of this one of the things we always have to let people know is that the threats against our lands territories and resources and the impacts and challenges created by climate change continue unabated and in in many cases like with the examples that you brought up like they're actually escalating and like in state-sanctioned aggression and and corporate-led uh, um, uh, attacks on our lands, territories, and resources to promote very harmful uh, source, uh, sources of development or forms of development. I mean, in the midst of all of this, we still had to deal with issues of um, promoting uranium mining in the Grand Canyon. We still had to deal with issues with um, the National Regulatory uh, Association, uh, tr- Nuclear Regulatory Association, trying to push through plans for uh, creating uh, a- another nuclear waste repository in New Mexico with Holtec. And so, like, we're, we're, we're not even allowed to... to to just focus. Coal is a big is still an industry that the Navajo Nation um, is uh, promotes and uh, extracts revenue from. I, I, you know, one of the things that was brought up in all of this discussion about the CARES Act, there was a lot of people, very, very um, smart, very politically aware. Uh, Navajo Nation citizens who were pointing out that, I mean, we had years to deal with the transition plan and and create a funding mechanism and plans for a revenue, how to use revenue from the coal to support more sustainable economies when it came to the closure of the Navajo generating station. And we still haven't made progress on that. So how do we expect our tribes to make progress in allocating and fully expending a $700 million budget in, in a matter of six months? And, you know, it, it, they, they, it's shown right. And I have I feel a lot for our elected leaders. You know, our, I know a lot of them and I know a lot of them are doing their best in the circumstances that we're operating in. But our even our tribal leadership is a legacy of colonial control of our lands, our peoples and our communities. And so there are going to be limitations with what it what they can and cannot do and how they can and cannot make these plans and expend these expend these funds that are deeply rooted 
and and the way that the federal government has always tried to puppeteer and and exploit our tribal governance systems for their own ends. And so there, there's, it's an enormous challenge to try to think about how do we then use these resources that are suddenly made available by the federal government to address issues that they created through their own design over generations of, of, of just colonial rule and, 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 and asserting a, a definition of sovereignty that is, that is defined as domestic dependent nationhood. And so, you know, like the challenges were great, but I think that's what made it even more critical for this administration to use this time and this resources to partner with the people on the ground. All of the people who've stood up and created mutual aid efforts across our nation to to bring adequate education, to bring language-based um, medical material to communities, to bring resources, homemade masks, reusable PPE, food, water, electricity to people who need it most in order to help them stay safe and to do it in a way that is smart, that allows us to not only respond to this pandemic, but to get begin to build the foundation for a more sustainable, self-determined uh, a social net and governance structure that actually reflects and, and prioritize, pr prioritizes the health and safety of our people above all things. Well, I got, I've got a video coming out tomorrow. Um, it's I don't know if anybody's done one on the five U.S. policies towards Native people, you know, extermination, uh, uh, removal, uh, assimilation, termination, and self-determination. And as I, as I describe what these policies were and how many of them overlapped or either continue, you know, it's not just something that, you know, that uh, they weren't just period pieces. These, these were all geared towards genocide. They were all geared, assimilation is genocide. And I think people sometimes don't make that connection. But even the last policy that, uh, that the United States claims is their, uh, their dominant policy, self-determination, you, you alluded to it, but they, this, it isn't self-determination in the international sense of the word. I know you do work mm -hmm. with the UN and in the international community, self-determination is, it's like statehood. It's it's like nation state. Mm -hmm. it, it it's about asserting sovereignty. We we both know that if you go through the entire UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, the only time the word sovereignty is mentioned is when it's talking about the nation states that are being directed to offer or, or to, you know to to maintain this this bare minimum uh, level of, of of indigenous rights. With no, there is no talk about ours. And in fact. The reason the United States opposed the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, one, they said they were afraid it was going to rewrite uh, international law, but they wanted to be clear. And, and, and even their, their National Security uh, Council, uh, they came through and they said, look, it needs to be clear here that when the United States sells, says self-determination, we don't mean the international definition of self-determination. We mean internal. You know, they can organize amongst mm -hmm. themselves. And, and, uh, and if, in fact, they went so far as to say, we don't for a second assert that Native peoples have the right to, uh, to assert sovereignty over their own land. I mean, and that's, that's coming from the, the National Security Council. And this was part of the reason they voted against the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples in, two, in 2007. And this is still the battle that we're facing here today because this idea of imposing self-governance that, that they create that you know that that is modeled in their own images, so to speak, and they actually try to suggest that our self governance is is a part of the overall breakdown of um, 
uh, of U.S. governance, like like we're like these are we're just municipalities somewhere in between townships or counties and states mm-hmm. that we're that we are we are government U.S. government. Uh, um, governance, uh, governments ourselves. So there, there is a pl- complete disconnect, and that's part of the reason we get into this battle. When people talk about things like decolonization, they're talking about finding spaces within the colonial structures to exist, not ridding ourselves, not untangling ourselves, mm. and doing some of the very work that you're talking about, where we we do restoration of of some of of we bring our traditions forward. We don't we don't take ourselves mm-hmm. backwards, but we bring our our traditions forward. And this is the challenge that that we all face and on the on the Canadian side. You know, Native people on the on the Mexican side. You know, we we have all these border issues that we're battling all the time. And in the midst of all this stuff, not only do you have this pandemic that strikes our territories very hard but you the ongoing battles that that you know think basic things like clean water well part of the challenge is that that at least what some of the media grabbed onto was was the lack of of clean um water uh, and available water in navajo territory which actually forces people to come together because there are watering stations so it's not like everybody's got uh, you know got running water in their homes and and so when 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 we we talk about things like well, we we don't have broadband, or we don't have you know um, uh, certain uh, you know, um, luxuries. What well, some people call luxuries, but are rapidly becoming necessities. Mm-hmm. I don't think people can wrap their heads around the fact that we still struggle with basic necess- necessities like water. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think that one of the things that's missing from a lot of these conversations, like one, absolutely, people are are are, are being denied their true history of colonial expansion and the way colonization has has created the development of states and a lot of the f- legal frameworks that were still systemically oppressed are are uh, uh, underneath but they also neglect to make the connections with how this is the reality for a lot of rural communities for a lot of poor communities um and and we we have waited far too long to come to the realization and see these connections between what has happened with indigenous peoples in this country, how they've been subjugated systemically and still continue to live under very strong systems of oppression that are enabled by the federal government, but also how those lessons and in the and in, in the crafting of this this uh, assimilative genocidal uh, machine. It ha- also disadvantages immigrant, black, people of color, and even poor white communities because of the same damn playbook in their communities as well. Like a lot of these these communities don't have water security. They don't have energy security. And they don't realize that it's ultimately because this structure and the system of corporate capitalism that has come to be birthed from the from these systems of colonialism is fundamentally unsustainable and irreconcilable with the human rights and sustainability needs of all of our communities. You don't have and to have a desert to have a food desert, and you don't have to have, yeah. have a desert to have a healthcare desert. Uh, Janine, we're going to take a break here just, um, just to so I can take a drink and catch my breath here. Uh, when I come, when we come back, I want to talk about Black Lives Matter because I, you know, I I absolutely see how we have, you know, in in an unlikely manner, become some of the beneficiaries of 
uh, our voices being heard, not because we had to change the, uh, you know, change the language of Black Lives Matter, but it, it, by supporting Black Lives Matter, it made people be aware of the voices that, that they've been ignoring all this time. So I want to talk about Black Lives Matter when we come back. That sounds great. Yes, absolutely. All right. This is John Kane with Janine Yazi from Diné Territory, and we will be right back after just a, just a brief break here. All right. Thanks for coming back. This is John Kane. I've got Janine Yazi as my guest. Uh, but before we get back into it, and we are going to talk about Black Lives Matter and how it has impacted us. Um, but I also want to thank my, my sponsors. I want to thank Ross and Holly John and the RJE family of businesses. I want to thank uh, Eric White and ERW Enterprises and the good folks at Grand River Enterprises. Look, I also want to thank those of you who, who help out from time to time. My, my buddy Ed Schindler, you know, we're, we're trying to buy a couple of new pieces of equipment, replace the soundboard, do some other recording equipment. Uh, got my friend uh, Harry Wallace down uh, uh, with the the Puspatuck, uh, res- uh, Puspatuck Reservation. You know, folks like that who step up when we need it i mean look we've got we've got our weekly sponsors and, and our monthly sponsors but man when, when it comes down to crunch time and we've got to replace some equipment i, I there are certain people out there who, who help us do that and and as i say and i say it proudly we are in entering our 11th year of let's talk native so i'm uh you know it, it's been there were some lean times through there and and we're still struggling we're we're dealing with covid19 ourselves here in the uh cataraugus territory seneca nation but um we're trying to keep at it and provide um context uh provide conversation conversations that we hope you will continue not we aren't trying to be the conversation we're trying to promote the conversation so and again i'm i'm thrilled to death to have uh, janine yazi from Diné territory joining me uh, for the program giving us some some insights on on what is happening on the ground in uh, in navajo territory but i also want to step back a little bit and i'm, I'm sitting here and uh, you can't necessarily see me but i'm wearing my i can't breathe shirt today um, because that I can't breathe relates both to COVID-19 and obviously Black Lives Matter and the death of George Floyd. And, and I've got to say, I know that since the death of George Floyd, I think a lot of people, non-Native people, non-Black people, white people, I mean, all of a sudden said, this is too much and we better start paying attention. And I'm not saying everybody. Obviously, the, you know, the right wing of you know, U.S. politics will, you know, they'll remain deaf, dumb, and blind. But a lot of people who were almost complicit with their silence, uh, they stopped being silent. And now you've got you know, people being attacked in places like Portland. Very, very white populations are being attacked by federal agents and, and that kind of stuff. But, I, Janine, I want you to give me your thoughts on, on how – Black Lives Matter helps shine a light. Um, look, we, we've had Columbus statues issues. We, you know, the Washington football team, mm-hmm. but but I, I, you know, I think it is it is empowered our voices a little bit. So, w- what are your thoughts? Absolutely. You know, when when I think about this, I think about Standing Rock and how Black Lives Matter uh, advocates showed up and stood in solidarity with our relatives who are defending their sacred water. 
And in the midst of this pandemic, with, with, with what's happened with George Floyd and with even with everything that was happening in our communities, we had Native youth step up and organize their own Black Lives Matter marches and, and demonstrations of solidarity because I, I, I just think there's been a wonderful job done by, you know, like uh, former generations, former movements, Black Panthers, AIM, Indigenous intellectuals and, and Black intellectuals around the history of this nation and how our struggles intersect. And, and on top of that, you know, building relationships. And I myself am married to a beautiful Trinidadian man who has been a, an extreme asset to my communities, to me, to help carry out the work that is important for our self-determination. Uh, and I think that with, with that, there's been a growing intersectionality rooted in love and critical analysis of the colonial state and the history of these these empires um, building wealth off of our collective subjugation, off of the genocide of Native peoples, the theft of our lands, territories, and resources, off of the enslavement of our, our Black brothers and sisters, and off of their continued uh, exploitation and, and murder by police forces. And so I think that with with what has happened and with the conversations in within movement spaces about these intersections we've become stronger by acting together and by really allowing in these movement spaces each other the appropriate space they need to put forward you know what their claims are so there's no co-optation of each other's movements and i Absolutely. think that that's the direction that's the direction we need to continue to go is stand in solidarity because none of us is none of us are going to be free until we're all free i mean we, we've seen columbus statues come down we've seen conquistador statues come down mm -hmm. una paracera statues come down i know that our, our friends uh our brothers and sisters or brother and sisters out in uh, uh hawaii are really giving that mckinley statue a hard look every single day so i mean look and we've all benefited from our voices finally being heard because it isn't necessarily um us that, that are taking them down i mean it is it are, it's people saying no we've we, we hear the native voices we know what columbus was all about we and even here uh the closest city to me is buffalo the Italian Federation, they took the statue down because they were afraid of what we were going to do to it. So we didn't have to take it down. So it's uh, we, we've experienced this thing. And and look, we've done so without having to, you know, try to water down Black Lives Matter with All Lives Matter or Native Lives Matter. No, n none of us who were really conscious and, and responsible did that. We, we still maintained that the Black Lives Movement is the Black Lives Movement and we don't need to, you know, to do some uh, word appropriation of, of, of what they've started. And look, I happen to be in New York when people were, were walking down 7th Avenue uh, after Freddie Gray and, and, and that kind of stuff. So, you know, I've had the opportunity in, in some places. You know, I haven't been back to New York since, uh, since, since March. I still do a show in New York on Thursdays. Um, so, but, I, but I do it remotely from my own studio here in Seneca Territory. Um, but, no, I, I, I see how this goes. And, and some of the same criticisms that I hear um, hurled towards, uh, towards Black Lives Matter or, or any activist who's trying to stand up for for black causes they get the, they get the exact same treatment we did or we do so it's it's been empowering mm -hmm. to 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 see this connection in fact you mentioned black lives matter going up to standing rock ironically 
you know, one of the, the the first criticisms I heard is, yeah, well, we didn't see Black Lives Matter up in Standing Rock. And I'm thinking, well, then you just weren't looking because they were there. I mean, are you probably weren't there <laughs> or, or you didn't care enough. I mean, and so you, you you hear people that that will will hurl totally unsubstantiated, you know, uh, you know, claims out there. And mm-hmm. and then when you try to correct them, you know, again, that these are the folks on the right. I got to tell you, and and I'm not. I'm not promoting Democrat over Republican. I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm just saying that I've seen people who have never really given us the time of day all of a sudden doing it. And, and you know, some of it, you know, does you know, cross over to the, you know, out to the right side of their political spectrum. But, you know, I, 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 there, I said this before. There's just a real human moment when an individual is, is, has a police officer kneeling on his neck calling to his mother asking you know asking for his breath asking for help and people pleading you know bystanders pleading with those cops you know telling you're, you're killing him you're killing him and and again listening to George Floyd call to his mother and then seeing the callousness the the absolute absolute you know absence of of any emotion on the faces of those cops i think it struck people in a way that for some reason, Tamir Rice couldn't do it. Uh, um, uh, Sandra Bland couldn't do it. Uh, Eric Garner couldn't do it. I mean, um, it, it's it's like, I, it's not even so much that that this was the straw that broke the camel's back. It's almost like it just enabled the veil to be pulled back on, on some people who who maybe were just too uncomfortable to look at it before. And now, because of social media, because of, of the attention this got, I, I think it forced people to look at it. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the other advantages coming out from this moment and and sort of this, uh, whatever this threshold was that was crossed, is the recognition that we all have responsibility to deeply reflect and do that internal work to get rid of, to recognize and get rid of anti-blackness sentiments and conditioning and biases, to understand and learn about the true history of colonization and Native American genocide and ongoing assimilative policies and how that's created the conditions of third world countries in Native communities, and to learn about how we we are all part and have become cogs in this corporate capitalist machine posing as a democracy and and it's time for us to wake up because we don't have time anymore to pretend that our struggles and our our shared visions of liberation and of freedom aren't connected and i think that you know we're we're experiencing a very very troubling moment with the rise in fascism and white supremacy and the desperation of 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 these state um forces trying to use violence and militarize police forces in order to quell protests and and people take going to the streets to to show that solidarity physically um, but we're also living in a very exciting moment, an exciting moment of important transitions, of important learnings and reflections, and a lot of important work that we need to do at the individual level to ensure that we are continuing to educate ourselves, or uneducate in many cases, in order to become part of the collective solution and no longer hold these biases and assumptions or, or try to, you know, I, I forget what the, what the word is, um, try to engage in oppression Olympics. Um, but really do work together for for the type of future that our children deserve. Yeah. Well, and, and I and again, I feel like 
we have to address some of the religious oppression. And and mm. you know, look, when I hear, I, look, there, there's a guy you know who claims to be running for president and claims Navajo ancestry, and he literally uses the doctrine of Christian discovery. And he's a Calvinist, which is you know one of the more aggressive and uh, and oppressive uh, Christian denominations that, you know, that that Native people, Hawaiian people, others have experienced. But he uses the doctrine of Christian discovery as an argument for assimilation, not decolonization, not the idea that that we should expose what the doctrine of Christian discovery is to assert our free and independent existence. No, he uses it as some sort of you know strange twist to to promote calvinism and to promote his own you know we are the people kind of thing and and because we don't adequately confront what some of these systems of oppression and religion is one of those systems of oppression that always has been and, and it still is and i know it's tough because in our territories and 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 many other uh People who have experienced, uh, you know, colonialism, you know, uh, much of the Hispanic population, um, much of the black population. This is something religion is one of those places that 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 becomes a real awkward and a and a a place that people want to stay away from. And I, and I got to tell you, and and it's not just because it, you know Navajo territory became you know a, had its first super spreader event tied to evangelicals, but but the but the whole idea that. Uh, that anybody would suggest that that some of this is God's will, and that mm. that that we are somehow have to just ride this out and to see if we have sought enough you know enough favor from God. I, I just I'm just troubled by that, and 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 of course it fits in with the evangelical right and the, and you know some of what they look. There are still people, and and you know Mike Pence and and Donald Trump, they will still suggest that whatever Native people went through. It was worth it because we were civilized and and we and, and we were baptized or some other damn thing. And so I'm sorry, I, I don't want to hijack the whole conversation, but I just feel no, like it's no, necessary. It's, you're, you're hitting it right on the. You're hitting the nail on the head because you don't have to be white to uphold and promote white supremacy and and, and criticizing and 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 bringing out a critical analysis of religion as an institution does not also equate and i feel this is the harmful framing in native communities in particular like like criticizing the institution of religion does not equate uh criticizing the sacred or criticizing uh spirituality um like there there's a, a political agenda that is historically and, and through so much research and so much data been documented throughout generations and how religious institutions were brought to our nations to continue to the, the assimilation and genocidal project. They were actually the first arms of the government to carry this out into our territories. And this is, this is true in every community and population that has been subjugated by colonial rule. Like the, the unless your church unless your religion is showing you know um jesus as the black man that he was and telling the story of him being killed by state sanctioned violence uh for opposing the gov oppressive government forces like your religion is serving white supremacy and it's serving a narrative to uphold the status quo which does not serve you or your communities and it needs to be said it's a sickness it's a it's a it's a 
um, it's been equated as as a way to uh, for people to carry out internalized colonization and lateral oppression in our own communities. And until we can get over this barrier, we, we will continue to find ourselves in conflicts where, like, like I said earlier in the show, where we have a tribal administration that is extending olive branches and welcoming with open arms evangelical groups to come in and help save our people while, while villainizing and, and actually delegitimizing grassroots-led, native-led efforts from people in their own communities trying to help their relatives and their clan clan relations yeah. and, and you know obviously that's not sustainable well and, and I, I think it's it's got to be pointed out that you know uh, the uh, the view that that the the christian nations of europe and, and indeed the united states through much of his existence the view that they had towards towards native people is that we were less than human and and in fact there are politician after politician that talk about us joining the human race like, like we weren't there already. We had to join the human race, and if we didn't, then we had to be destroyed. And of course, now you look. Then you look in your in your frame things like the residential schools, which I still maintain it was a breeding ground for what is now considered the clergy sex abuse uh, scandals that that plague not just the Catholic Church but many of the other churches. But when you look at what was done to to our kids, not just the the assimilation but and that all by itself is a war crime but the the physical abuse the sexual abuse the psychological abuse the, the sterilization mm-hmm. programs the the you know the the idea of letting i mean people talk about what happened uh, with the tuskegee experiments and, and letting in, in, injecting syphilis into uh into you know black men to to watch it what would happen as the, the as it progressed well the same thing was happening with native kids when it came to tuberculosis there was no effort to to quarantine they just let it spread and in some at at some times some of the periods of time both on the u.s and the canadian side there was a 50 percent mortality rate for 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 residents of these residential schools so you know, I, again, I, I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm unnecessarily beating anybody up, but this is a part of the truth that has to be exposed. Mm-hmm. And, and when you put it into those contexts, it certainly does make you view a Billy Graham uh, motorhome showing up that's, that's going to somehow save you spiritually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I felt like a, I felt like a punch to the gut to tell you the truth because you know I've been mobilizing with great amazing people who've been, literally built mutual aid efforts from scratch and have personally seen the stress and the struggle of our volunteers trying to work within mandated curfew hours because we weren't given a waiver as essential workers by our government so uh, to be to be free to work outside curfew hours. And then to just to see the like our young people having to face all of these challenges just to serve their communities and then have this red carpet rolled out for these evangelical Christian groups to come in and save our people without the type of love, care, compassion, critical analysis of the needs that our people need and an investment in long-term recovery. Uh, and, um, and let's to, not forget that these, these church organizations are wealthy beyond you know, most people can, what most people can imagine. And, and Billy Graham's crusades are, are among, you know, the, the most enriched 
evangelical organizations mm-hmm. there are. So rather than providing resources, they come in with a, their glitzy bus so they can have photo ops uh, with with the president of the Navajo Nation. It, you're right. It, it is. It's it's not just a punch. In, it's not just a punch in the gut to you. It's it's a punch in the gut to all of us because this is the kind of stuff that that we see over and over and over again. So um, uh, uh, I'm glad. You know, I got I got to admit that sometimes this is a difficult subject to to bro- uh, you know to broach with some some people because some people you know have been this they don't even view the religious indoctrination as part of the colonization um, effort. And, uh, you know, and of course I knew better with you, but uh, um, I'm, I'm glad we could have this, this frank conversation on the show. Absolutely. It's, it's well overdue and it needs to happen more and more often in these public conversations around the situation that we're dealing with when it comes to systemic oppression and inequality, because these two have been, the state and, and religion have been tied together in the colonial project since the founding of this nation. Well, and, and to talk about this stuff is not, to, I'm not even talking reparations. I'm talking about our right to a free and independent existence. And the reason for exposing the doctrine of Christian discovery isn't so, so what we can be embraced, you know, uh, you know, to conform with, you know, American colonialism or American imperialism or with, you know, uh, the spread of Christendom. No, it's about saying, here's the reason that, I mean, that the very act of, of imposing this doctrine of Christian discovery on us is the very reason we we maintain that much of the laws that have been found you know that are foundational to that and and a lot of it is everything from jurisdictional issues to to land use issues land title issues i mean look many of our territories uh, we we hold our lands a little differently out here but many of the lands native lands are lands that we don't actually hold the title to the federal government does they they hold it mm-hmm. as trust lands for for our native people for our free use and enjoyment and that's held over our heads and all mm-hmm. of that idea that this that the united states could hold our land title for us is is foundational um in in the doctrine of christian discovery and these are the things that that people don't want to connect the dots i i give you know i gotta give credit when the, the Yakima, one of the, that company up in Yakima territory was fighting uh, the taxation issue over him delivering fuel oil, mm-hmm. the, the Yakima Nation submitted uh, amicus briefs there, and it was a two-part. And, and the first part was, was exposing, was all about laying out the, uh, the, the, the invalidity of, um, uh, of the doctrine of Christian discovery. The second part had to do with treaty issues. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court didn't even touch the Doctrine of Christian Discovery uh, portion of their amicus brief. And they did ultimately rule. In fact, Neil Gorsuch was the deciding vote that, uh, that, went, that supported uh, the ruling that helped out this, this Yakima uh, fuel vendor. But I'm glad to see that there are those of us in various places that are, are, are walking the walk and we're talking the talk. And we're not afraid to address... Uh, just because these are long-standing, uh, you know, precedents that were established, if you take a look at them and you really hold it up even to their constitutional lens, you realize that it's that it's invalid. And of course, the doctrine of Christian discovery uh, in the the third affirmation of the, or I'm sorry, the, the the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, the third affirmation of that clearly lays out that any, you know. Uh, 
superiority that is uh, promoted by you know racism or religion or nation of origin that it's that it's legally invalid morally condemnable socially unjust scientifically false and and they go they go on so i think we need to make sure that that part of that language is with us all the time every time we're confronted with these with these jurisdictional battles and with these uh land use battles that we we stand up and say no well your your whole foundation for for making these claims is is you know legally invalid absolutely absolutely i am like a hundred percent in on that strategy um you know i i've been seeing like interesting memes you know it's kind of how i get like half of my news uh, <laughs> but i've been seeing interesting memes where people are talking about you know like the legal system and like how like slavery was legal child exploitation was legal like all these horrible things used to be legal so legality shouldn't be the moral compass exactly. over how we we address things and like one of the things that always strikes me is that embedded into our legal systems is the swearing of the oath on the bible and to god right teaching little like, kids and, to pledge allegiance to the flag and that kind of stuff all of that right yeah yeah and like and we're, we're still living in a country where it's still legal not only to take away lands from indigenous peoples but to actually take away your ability to self-identify as your nation and like that's what we saw with the wampanoag nation yep. not only the erasure of the land but then what connected to that is the erasure of identity affiliation and that's a genocidal act being carried out by this administration in 2020. One of the, one of the, people, one of the craziest parts about the Wampanoag issue is that in order for them to make their case for doing a fee to trust application, they had to, they had to provide sufficient information and proof to the federal government that they were under U.S. jurisdiction in 1934. And this is one of these bizarre, I mean, in what world do you say, in order for us to get our land back, we've got to say that we were subjugated, not today, not yesterday, but in 1934? It's one of these most bizarre things that exist, but, but you're absolutely right to bring it up. Yeah, no, it's it's ridiculous. We we have so many experience working just just in the area of land and earth restoration and community healing yep. and coming up with systemic barriers that render that nearly impossible because of outdated, archaic legal frameworks and definitions that never reflected justly or truly the reality of the ground and our people's connection, existence, and inherent rights to be and live as human beings on this earth and Janine, so, like, you have got to join me again Lynn, and the next time we'll talk about the good work that you're doing not just all of this stuff that we're experiencing right now and when things ever um relax enough that i go back to new york or you go back to the new york perhaps part of the, some of the un work that you're doing perhaps we can get together and you can join me on my new york show as well and we can get a chance to have coffee or something someplace i'd look forward to that I would love that. Well, thank you so much for joining me here, and and I will ask you to come back if you've got something that's come that's coming up that you want to promote. Um, I'd be happy to uh, to assist you with that and, and have you join me on my program to do that. So let's 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 uh, plan to to regroup and, and catch back up soon. 
Absolutely. That sounds great. Thank you so much. All right. And I want to thank all of you for listening. Uh, great program. But if you, if you, if you watch this show, if you, and if you've heard the show, please share it. This is a, this is, a, was a, a good program, a great guest. And, uh, and again, I can't say enough about, um, you know, what a pleasure it was to have Janine join me for, uh, for the hour. And this hour flew by. So we'll do another, we'll do another one. Look, we've got to, uh, we're going to do our New York show on Thursday, uh, at, at three o'clock and we'll, uh, airing live on WBAI in New York City. So we'll we'll see you back here on Thursday and do it again. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. Yahweh. Rivers run dry, dust breaths in the air. Two dark days, do you have a tear to spare? Make a promise, the world awaits. It's heavy, just breathing through this debate. Start up, come on, start up.